Welcome to the RCAP USA Roundup, a podcast where we have real conversations affecting both cattle producers and beef consumers. We're your hosts, Jaden Moreland and Karina Jones. With that, let's get to today's episode. This episode is sponsored by AgRisk Advisors. Headquartered in Greenwood Village, Colorado, AgRisk Advisors serves livestock and farming interests across the country with sound risk management advice. For 15 years, AgRisk Advisors has been providing ranchers and farmers with always reliable service and exclusive decision tools rolled together with practical, trustworthy advice. From the smallest farms to the largest spreads, AgRisk Advisors has extensive experience working for producers like you. Learn how to better protect the legacy and livelihood your family works so hard to earn by giving AgRisk Advisors a call today. On today's episode, we discuss the World Trade Organization, trade, tariffs, and more as they relate to agriculture, the cattle industry, and our country with Charles Benoit from the Coalition for a Prosperous America. Okay, well, welcome to today's episode of the RCAP USA Roundup. We are excited to have Charles Benoit with us today. So Charles, why don't we start with just getting to know you and tell us about yourself, your job, where you came from, your career, that kind of stuff. Thanks. Yeah, happy to be here. I really appreciate it. So my name is Charles Benoit. Uh, all my friends call me Chuck, so feel free to do the same. I, uh, I'm the trade council at Coalition for a Prosperous America. We're uh, a nonprofit organization. We represent the interest of 4.1 million households through our board and our members, a uh, diverse group of Republicans, Democrats, independents, conservatives, liberals. And uh, you know, we're, our focus is on domestic producers. Uh, we uh, A lot of the big trade associations in D.C. are dominated by multinational, transnational enterprise uh, and so perspective of uh, producers domestically who are not, you know, singularly focused on inter- inter- global intellectual property or anything like that often gets lost out. And that's where that's the that's where CPA uh, has uh, filled that void. I, I, just about me, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if you guys knew this. Uh, I, I'm a dual U.S. Canadian citizen. So I actually grew up in Ottawa, Canada. So, you know, kind of the antagonist on this issue. But don't worry, I'm I'm, I'm fully on board with American ranchers here. And we can talk more about some of the uh, uh, ironies going on in the, the U.S.-Canada relationship. But so I, I grew up in Ottawa um, and then I, um, you know, I went to college uh, there, Western Ontario, but then I uh, worked overseas. I, uh, I, my first job, you know, I finished college in 2005. My first job was, you know, in India of all places and I uh, worked there, uh, worked in uh, France for a year, just uh, teaching English a French high school, um, but then, you know, went to law school in the States. And then I think that's where, you know, um, international trade is kind of a smaller issue in American law schools. Uh, it's, uh, but the the field is really practiced in two cities, DC and Geneva. And uh, so I was in DC for law school and um, uh, Georgetown and I, you know, being from Canada, international trade is a way bigger issue up there than it is down here. Like international trade is a big chunk of the Canadian economy. So trade disputes are like front page news, whereas here they're only mentioned in trade press. So I, I was kind of like, I think predisposed. I'm like, oh, I'm at this like great school in DC. And uh, there's all these international trade classes. Almost all of the, um, cl- all, all my classmates, almost all of them were actually foreign lawyers from, you know, they, a lot of them worked for their trade ministry and they were coming over to do like a one-year LLM. So I was one of the only like American JD students there. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of started my career in international trade. I, I worked for, um, uh, I, got, I was really lucky, you know, graduating in 2010. I, I managed to get a, start working for General Electric. 
Um, and uh, that was great. That was like, I was, I, I say that, you know, if you were like a, you know, just joining the military, that was like being dumped right into the heart of Pentagon, you know, being in GE's trade office in uh, DC, uh, I got like total behind the scenes curtain, um, you know, firsthand insight into like how trade is actually done. You know, uh, they were, um, uh, that company was a big player uh, in trade policy. So, um, and, uh, you know, doing a lot of things, but I started to see a lot, a lot of problems with rules-based trade. Like this is not working out for our country. Like this became very clear to me. I, I don't, you know, I think I was always a bit like, a, you know, some, a, a questioner. I'd never just accepted things at face value, but, you know, but then when I really got to see how the sausage was made, I was like, wow, this thing is, uh, you know, got a lot of problems. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, I ultimately, uh, um, was thrilled, you know, I was, I was watching this little organization coalition for prosperous America had started up. And I think I was like, maybe the sixth employee We're about doubled now and like, they get it. And I was, you know, thrilled to, to be able to like take my expertise and, you know, align it with my principles and, uh, join CPA and, and help them. So that's kind of my story. Well, we're big fans of CPA over here at our calf. We love working with y'all and yeah, y'all get it. And so um, kind of just tell us about kind of what CPA, like what are some of the issues that CPA has worked on? Um, and specifically, I guess what you've helped with um, there at CPA. Yeah. So I'm like the, I'm like, I think I've built a little brand. I'm like, the, I'm the tariff guy. Tariffs are, uh, they, they've become complicated, but they don't need to be. Uh, and um, I, I do a lot of education on Capitol Hill. You know, I, 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 we view tariffs are they're the most they're the best way to raise revenue. That a lot of people don't realize that's how the United States that's how we funded ourselves for most of our history. You know, we didn't get an income tax. We briefly had a little one in the Civil War, but um, it was really just in the early 20th century when we started to uh, um, the anti-tariff forces kind of took over on the Hill, and uh, and we we swapped to you know became an income tax nation uh, i don't think that's good income tax really complicates our life it makes business and everything a lot harder tariffs are so elegant you know from a compliance perspective like income tax i mean we we're, we're in tax season now it's a huge headache for everybody for for businesses you know anyone anyone operating a business knows that it's it's a huge um headache and um uh you know it, it influences like every business decision you make it's a gazillion credits and deductions you have to think about. And uh, no, tariffs are elegant. They're just very neatly applied to merchandise at the point of entry. You use tariffs to fund your government. You keep the internal market totally nice and liquid. You know, commerce is free flowing. And, and you know, we, we built, uh, you know, the greatest economy in the world with um, a highly protective tariff law. Uh, you know, it, from uh, between 1789 and 1930, we only had two trade agreements, okay? Uh, one was with Hawaii, and that was a precursor, frankly, to annexation. We actually wanted to, we were, we, we took, we moved a lot of our sugar sourcing from Cuba to, uh, we, we, you know, that was Spanish Cuba to Hawaii. And then we briefly had one with Canada. Um, I think it was like 1856 or something. And uh, it was just to a handful of commodities. Guess what? Hugely unpopular on both sides of the border. Um, it was like, <laughs> and it, we actually we re, we repealed it. It was unpopular in Canada too, but we were the ones who repealed it after there was the, we, were, we weren't too happy with the British after the Civil War. But uh, yeah, I think it was like 1866, right after the Civil War, we repealed our, our free trade agreement with Canada, and um, both Canada and the U.S. went overdrive on embracing tariffs. 
So that was uh, so we, that, that we had a kind of Republican dominance in the second half of the 20th, 19th century. They campaigned on a high tariff wall to protect our producers and Canada, too. Uh, their their first prime minister, John A. Macdonald, uh, that country started uh, 1867 was when they kind of like founded the they, they merged the British colonies into the Dominion of Canada. And their whole thing, like their first their George Washington was he ran on what called the national policy, which was, you know, a, a copy paste of Henry Clay's American system, uh, which was a high tariff wall, national infrastructure and a central bank. So, um yeah, uh, you know, it worked out for both countries. We, Canada and the United States, uh, you know, grew local economies uh, through high tariffs and rejecting trade. Um, and then, you know, just I'll, you know, you asked me about like what interests me in particular. Uh, you know, my wife's Canadian um, and she's she's from Quebec. Uh, her whole family's in the dairy industry. Okay, so her uh, um, her uh, her father runs a feed mill in Quebec, and so I've I've got a lot of exposure to Canada's supply management system for dairy and it's phenomenal. Um, you know, uh, CPA, uh, we don't have those dairy members yet, unfortunately, but, um, to support, but, uh, we, uh, I've personally paid a lot of attention to it. It works. I I'm really put off by, you know, uh, I, I kind of view us, uh, these, these dairies with over 10,000 cows who are driving us dairy policy, mostly out West. I mean, I know I've talked to Wisconsin, um, dairy farmers where the average dairy has got like, a, I think still like a, 100, 120 cows or something like that. Um, and smaller dairies, uh, New York state, I mean, they don't, they, they want what Canada's got. They don't, they, they want the supply management system. Um, and, uh, and they, they say like, okay, you know, these big dairy milk federations, they don't speak for us. We're not, you know, we're not going to see any marginal benefit to our farm, uh, from whatever export access you can get, but you know, whatever, whatever the gains are, it's enough to fund a handful of lobbyists in a trade association. And so we just sort of unthinkingly pursue this. So while at the same time, Canada's pushing on us, pushing on our ranchers for that like little trivial extra market access, we're pushing them, them on dairy. And it's like, can't we all just get a, you know, like why, why don't we just both, you know, instead of trying to beat up the other country for a little sliver, why don't we just uh, get along? So that's kind of a, uh, you know, I, um, I, I don't, I can't claim a connection to the cattle industry, but for dairy, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel for small producers who have just been left out of American ag policy wholeheartedly, you know, across so many sectors. Before Jaden asks the next question, you kind of um, said some things that have triggered some questions that I want to, okay. that I want to go down a little bit further. Um, so you're saying that since you have kind of personal experience with the Canadian dairy industry, you're saying that it looks a lot different from the producer level in Canada than it does in America. Can you, so what is that difference? Tell us what a Canadian, the average Canadian dairy looks like. Okay. So I think the average dairy, Canadian dairy's got, uh, just over a hundred herd cattle or sorry, not really? well, well, uh, yeah, cows. Yeah. It, um, it's a bit higher out west, closer to you guys. Alberta, I think that they're like 130, 140 cows. But when you get out east to Ontario or Quebec, it's like they're it's under 100 cows. The average uh, farm, um, so uh, it way smaller. Uh, there's no well, they've not historically had to subsidize. Um, this might sound crazy, but uh, you know, and but we actually do in America too for peanuts. But uh, we, the way it works is they have a, a quota system, so. Uh, they've, they've got, uh, you know, a, a dairy commission, um, and, uh, that says like corner just, uh, just predicts, here's what the demand is. Here's what we look and demand. And 
So here's what we think production should be. And they, uh, they allocate quota to farmers. And by doing that, they, you know, they haven't had all the con consolidation and everything we have had. They're, 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 their farmers have way more certainty so they can invest. Actually, my, my wife's cousin, they've got a, I went to their, we visited their dairy farm in Prince Edward Island. Amazing. It's like, it's all the cows are free. When the, when the cows choose to get milked, when the cows, when the cows choose to get milked, they themselves walk in to this uh, um, robot system that does the milking. And what's amazing is the whole herd, they all like, they all, they all self-select, they all figured out within a week or so of the system being deployed, they all kind of figured out, okay, this is my time to go get milk. And so they don't even fight or anything. Uh, it's just like, it's just so refreshing, but, um, and that, that's the kind of future I'd love to see for dairy. Those farmers love it. Um, and it sounds, you know, you often get like, wait, that sounds totally communist. What are you talking about? You've got like, you know, people planning production and allocating quota. It's like, rah, 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 you know, um, well, guess what? We do it too. Uh, we, um, we, I, I think we've kind of, on peanuts, uh, in the, I, I do think we, we kind of, we, it's not, we don't call it quota anymore, but certainly well into the 2000s, we had exactly that system on peanuts. So um, we have a 131% tariff on peanuts and it's designed to just, we don't want peanuts imported. And uh, and we and we did and USDA distributed quota to peanut farmers. I think they they've gotten away from that now. It's like a price support system, and um, to be really fancy and loyally about it, it's called the tariff rate quota. So it's not for we to the extent that domestic peanut growers can't meet um, the you know uh, consumers' demands, what we need for consumption, we uh, we do still have quota for imports. Uh, so. Um, and uh, we allocate to that even to specific trading partners. So like, I think Argentina is our biggest source of uh, peanut imports, but we say like every year, depending on the needs and the forecast, okay, Argentina, like you can send this many, you know, uh, thousand tons or kil kilogram, everything's metric. Um, that's how many you can send tariff-free. Uh, and, it, but guess what? It just works. There's no, there's no anti-dumping countervailing duty lawsuits. There's not, you know, it, it's just, it's certainty for everyone around. And I, you know, I think that that's the future, right? Like, we, you know, with Canada, they, 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 they're fighting so hard. I mentioned they didn't have to historically subsidize their farm, their um, uh, farmers, their dairy farmers, because they had working price. With USMCA, we did, we did kick their ass a little bit. Um, and so I actually just pulled it up in uh, November of uh, 2022. The Canadian government, you know, because they caved, uh, and gave a bit more market access to U.S. dairy. Um, they, you know, it looks like they're 1.7 billion in direct payments to offset the, you know, the unexpected hit there. So, but uh, yeah, and you know, the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, I, driving back and forth between D.C. and Quebec, we, we've done, you know, I don't know, 50 times. I, I kind of know the area, um, and uh, like it's night and day. If you just want to see the difference, you, as soon as you cross the border into Southern Ontario, Southern Quebec, you know, from New York, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, it's like, whoa, one is a healthy rural landscape. The other is just economic devastation. I mean, Northern Vermont and Northern New Hampshire are, are like those towns just, it's, it's, it's rough. It's really rough. And so you can see like you, it's, it's immediately visible the, the effects of um, different ag policies have had on these rural areas. So on that note, I'm going to butt in again, Jaden, before you ask your next question, because you had just talked about some of the history behind trade policy. 
or lack thereof. And maybe now we're putting together the pieces of what the evolution of trade policy has done to the landscape of rural America. Were we better off being localists rather than chasing this global market mindset? 100%. 100%. I say I, I buy local for you know the whole world. Um, I, I I I think this is I I look at the you know I know I'm, I'm a student of the history of U.S. and Canada and trade policy. Like I could I could I'll talk with like I don't care I'll, I'll go head to head on on any academic you know no matter how tenured. Um, I, I've I've looked at the primary documents. I've done it, and you know it was the like, Canada and the United States got along phenomenally well um, with without trading with each other, and you and you had like localized supply chains like more trade. Um, you know, it, what it, it, the the net effect ultimately is more consolidation, right? And, and and now like things that we'd never be thought we'd be consolidated on, um, you know, New York, um, you, you ever you know the New York Times has that review service, the wire cutter. You, they just do con- re- consumer reviews of products. I look, you know, I looked up toaster ovens, and <laughs> it was the best wire cutter review I'd ever read. Uh, they're like, it doesn't matter what brand you buy. They're all from the same factory in China. There's one factory left on planet Earth that makes toast ovens, and you know all the high-end brands, Breville and everything. They they all come from the same factory, and this is this is it. You know, look, a country can absolutely mismanage tariff policy. I think a lot of developing countries, what where they really went wrong is they wanted they they wanted to be they for most of the 20th century they wanted to be independent and good on them for wanting to that. Um, I think the problem is what they didn't figure out the United States had aced was the importance of competition. You know, as ranchers know with the processors, competition is important. And so the path that in the 20th century, so many developing countries went down was high tariffs, but then like, we're going to have one national champion or even a state-owned enterprise. And that's just like that you had all the inefficiencies and it, it just didn't work out. And I think that that really gave tariffs a bad name. Um, and, you know, and certainly if you're, if and that still exists, if you're using tariffs to protect an inefficient national champion, then yeah, you know, things are going to get a lot better for your people when you, uh, you know, if you dismantle that tariff wall and invite competition for the first time. But we're a giant market, first of all. So we have the, you know, um, we're a giant market. We can have competition. And that was, that was the genius. Like in the late 19th century, we invented antitrust law here. And, you know, we had a high tariff wall, but also we were breaking up all of our trusts. Um, The railroad and farmers, they were, they knew firsthand. Um, and, uh, you know, ensuring healthy competition domestically. And, you know, I, it's not going to make sense for every country to be, you know, uh, totally cut off from the world for every trade, but you just got it. The beauty of the tariff schedule is you don't have to have one size fits all. You go product by product by product. And you're like, what makes sense here? And, you know, um, we're, we're, we're now get we're now seeing fresh citrus from China surging in. Is that, is that in anyone's interest? You know, um, all, all of our, uh, you know, the orange cups that you buy in the grocery store, China's taken that over. Del Monte, Dole, they're all sourcing from the same supplier in uh, China to make those little orange cups. Apple concentrate, China's taken that over. Mott's apple juice, look on the, uh, you know, for kids, Chinese concentrate. This is not healthy. We do not, like, there's no, I'm, this is not a way to run a country. It's just consolidation. And, you know, it, Canada is shown on dairy and other, they do to supply management for poultry, eggs, some other areas that, um, you know, they're not hurt. Like, it's not, it's not a problem. 
consumer, they're not having milk shortages. They're not having any problems with that. Uh, they've got stable prices. So yeah, um, sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but. No, that's good. That's, that is a perfect segue into our next question. Jaden, I'm just going to take this from here. Cause I've got a thought. Um, because as you just referenced the oranges, the, um, the apple, uh, concentrate all being taken over China, you said something key. It's right there on the bottle. It's right there on the fruit cups mm -hmm. where it comes from. Correct. Yep. Yep. Well, so that brings us to the reason that we have you on talking about mandatory country of origin labeling. Now, as someone who um, we are learning that you were involved in agriculture more than maybe Jaden and I thought when we first invited you on with your wife's association in the dairy industry, what interests you about MCOOL and the details of cattle industry trade? Yeah. Okay. So, um, and uh, things always make more sense to me with a historical perspective. So, why did this all happen? Um, it, there was no nefarious attempt, uh, like intent. You know, if we go back, the the default rule, and it's it is what it is. Um, you know, we we've okay. Sorry, let me go back even further. Seventeen eighty nine, we got a country. One of the first things we do, we pass a tariff act. Okay, the tariff act of seventeen eighty nine, and that was how we funded the federal government for a long time. Um, it now. We, 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 uh, for most of our history, like I said, we only had two trade agreements, but still we've got like, we had, we had, um, we did discriminate, like there's, there's countries we don't want to trade from. We would do boycotts. And that was a, that was a thing, like Napoleonic Wars, we're just boycotting a country, you know, like that was a thing we did from day one and countries have done for hundreds of years. Um, so it, 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 country marking laws have just been around forever. And that's why we see, you know, we're all we're all reminded daily when we pick up a thing and it says made in China on it, right? That's a country marking lot. That's just part and parcel of having tariffs, and tariffs go back six thousand years to ancient civilizations. So um, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. When we import things, we um, that the, the reason we have those country marking laws is for tariffs because uh, we, the the every everything has to come through a port. Okay, that's 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 just how civilization has worked for six thousand years. Things have to come through ports. If they don't, that's smuggling. And um, and to facilitate our like how we want to run our civilization, our country, we want to know where those things came, what country they came from. So marking laws are universal. Okay. Now, if you're talking about uh, a fruit, you know, if you're talking about an apple, it's not complicated. Uh, you know, what what country was this apple? This so that's we call that wholly obtained. If if a product is wholly obtained, it's wholly obtained. It's very straightforward, but things start to fall apart. You, you know, um, the classic example is, um, you know, a bicycle. If uh, if you send a bicycle frame, wheels, seat, you know, handlebars, gears, chain, everything in a box from uh, China to Mexico, and you just basically assemble it like you would assemble it at home, maybe if you bought a mail order one. Um, is that is that do and and that's imported from Mexico? Is that still a Mexican bicycle? Uh, so the de so how, a lot of people say no. Um, and what we've done the the default rule like if we don't have anything specifically to govern that situation, the default rule is something called substantial transformation. So that's like a key term of art in trade law. And um, what we say is for the purposes of the marking law, like made in or product of like what country we say it's the country that it was last substantially transformed 
Okay. Um, and uh, so if you just uh, like the, if you just, if all like for a bicycle, if all of the bike content, you know, was from China and all you did was assemble it. And it would, we would actually not consider that to be substantially transformed there for everything you can imagine. Now there's all this jurisprudence, thousands and thousands, I don't know, tens of thousands of uh, probably tens of thousands of that maybe, of uh, customs rulings, um, you know, going back decades and decades that for every specific product, they're like, okay, we consider that product to have been substantially transformed if X, Y, and Z happened in that specific manufacturing process. Okay, so we've got all of this jurisprudence for everything you can imagine where we say, where we've, where we've made a judgment call and said, okay, this is considered to be substantially transformed. Now, let's bring this around to uh, beef and meat. So, uh, the, the that was the default rule was uh for a long time you know it was no malicious attempt but it was that you know if you're a slaughterhouse and you're importing beef from uh mexico or canada you know that beef would have to be you know the crate would be labeled product of mexico but then if you slaughter and process it here in america you have you've substantially transformed it and you know that's not necessarily like in terms of the strict, like the, I want to emphasize that substantial transformation rule is like a rock bottom standard. We, we've we've gone and replaced it now. Like we've we for a number of products we've been like no no we we expect more. So the, but so it is what it is that it was deemed that if beef is slaughtered and turned into you know pardon me if I get some language wrong but like cuts you know I, I'm thinking of it as just a consumer here. Um, it, uh, you know once it once it's like you, you you've substantially transformed it and then it would be. Um, uh, you know, no longer, you, you would no longer need to label it product in Mexico. Uh, so that, that's all happened. There's a, a little interesting segue. Well, why? So you might ask, well, is it then product of USA and everything? Uh, there's a whole, where are you kind of unique? Um, separate from all everything. Remember the point of markings law was to facilitate tariffs in international trade. Totally separate from that. The federal trade commission in the United States has their own very strict made in the USA rule. So they're like the other, so substantial transformation is generally kind of a weaker rule. The federal trade commission totally separate from imports has some, has um, their own made in the USA rule, which uh, says that you can't call something made in the USA uh, unless it's virtually a hundred percent us content. And that's why we almost never see manufactured items labeled made in the USA. I'll give you an example. Uh, Vitamix, you know, they make like uh, food processors, blenders, among other things, and uh, they, um, uh, you know, they they assemble uh, um, food processors in Ohio, and they used, you know, they're still doing that, as far as I know, anyway. Maybe it's changed in the last few years, but they used to say, you know, a long time ago, made in the USA, but eventually they were they they started to like they were missing imported parts, and so they started to like use more imported content, and under a substantial transformation basis, they were a hundred percent like that. Like if they exported that uh, uh, blender to Canada, under Canada's rules, it would be product of USA because they substantially transformed and made a blender in America. But because we have, we uniquely have this domestic um, FTC rule, uh, they can't call that made in the USA. Uh, so you just tend to see, like if, if you ever see, if you don't see a marking on a on a on a manufactured item, that probably means that that was actually assembled in the United States. But they don't call it product of USA or made in the USA because they don't want to piss off the US. Pardon my language, sorry. They don't want to upset the U, um, 
they don't they, they don't call it made in the United States uh, because they don't want to upset. Uh, they, they'll run afoul of the FTC. Okay, so okay, yeah. so I want to stop you right yeah. there for a second and ask. So then, why why is that FTC made in the USDA or made in the USA? regulation applying to beef that is being being erroneously labeled product of the USA when we know that it's actually able to come in on a boat, be minimally processed, and that label slapped on. Why is the FTC not cracking down on okay, this yeah. when it comes to beef? Okay, right. So, uh, you know, I, and I'll have to brief myself, this, I'm, but I, I want to emphasize the FTC for the manufacturer items. But let's actually put that aside because now I want to I, I want to get to the situation with beef because USDA displaces here, right? Like they they take over. So um, on uh, they they this this was in the two thousand two Farm Bill um, that they 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 they, they, they took this on. They're like okay, like we're we, we're we're let, we shouldn't just be relying on substantial transformation um, uh, for uh, for for beef. So. And um, they, so Congress directed USDA to go figure this out. And as it was, it was 2009, that, that's when like, it was, it was really, it took them a long time, but that's when they finally produced a rule that was, um, to, that, you know, would, okay, forget about the substantial transformation baseline default. Uh, we, here's our standards for, um, uh, for uh, beef and how you should market it. And it would have done, you know, it would have given, it did give, it did give transparency to consumers. Um, and that's, this is now where the WTO strikes. So we, we, we got that and uh, we and immediately had litigation from Canada and Mexico. Uh, and, you know, the way the WTO litigation works, I mean, this is like if powerful interests call up trade authorities and call up ministers and that they get, you know, that's when these processes happen. Um, it's not like, like, I'd like, I'd love to say, you know, there some, sometimes countries work in their country's interest, other times they don't. Um, anyway, uh, so that this lawsuit happened and they said, this is an unfair trade barrier. This was a flimsy trade lawsuit. Um, I want to be before I, I, I like, sorry, did I, I I'm jumping. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of uh, if you, anything before I kind of talk about the WTO history, but does that make sense so far? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and yeah. walk us to 2015 and how the WTO, how a foreign body of countries now dictates the, the beef labeling laws in America. Yeah. So I cannot emphasize, I mean, I, um, you know, like I said, I started my GE career for um, my, my trade career with GE, uh, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of diff different industries. I, I truly believe this was the most egregious decision. Um, and like that, you know, you've got some company, but I actually, this is the worst. And um, of course, this would, uh, this was ultimately one of three decisions cited by the United States for why we just ended. But okay, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, why we ended the WTO dispute system. But um, okay, so, uh, you know, Canada, um, and the U.S. sued. Now, there, at the top threshold, I want to. There's two different types of uh, in WTO language uh, challenges. There's what are called as such challenges and as applied challenges. Okay, the um, as such challenges tend to be the stronger ones. So uh, I'll give you a perfect example right now. I mean, um, we're we, we're we're so far we're so far away from caring about WTO commitments as a country now. 
this was this started under Trump in 2018, but the Biden administration has actually really has amplified it. That you know, we we just had the Inflation Reduction Act. At CPA, we're big fans of the Inflation Reduction Act. It's doing a lot of good things. But one of the things striking from a trade lawyer's perspective is what we did on cars, specifically electric cars. And we just said, um, we'll give you a $7,500 uh, refund check on your income taxes if you buy an electric car made in North America, Canada, US, or Mexico. That's effectively the same thing as slapping a $7,500 tariff on every car, every electric car imported from Europe or Asia. And you know, we actually do a lot of that. We import a lot of cars from uh, Europe, Japan, and Korea. So that was pretty wild. I was like, wow, like we're in a whole new era now. That's an that's a as such WTO challenge. And I can we haven't even had a WTO lawsuit yet. Europe's been talking about it since last summer when the Inflation Reduction Act, but it hasn't just shows you how far we've gone. But but that Europe and Korea and Japan, they wouldn't have had to wait for anything. Uh, because the language that Congress passed on itself discriminates so blatantly and in a very material way. I mean, you know, seven hundred dollars is a lot of money. Um, that's a pure WTO lawsuit, pure break. I mean, and you understand um, like that when that's called a national treatment violation. A national treatment violation is where you have like a discriminatory thing, right? So if we promise to Canada, okay, we're going to only have um, we're going to have a zero percent tariff on Canadian whiskey. But then we turn around and pass a 10% sales tax on Canadian whiskey. You know, that's that's functionally the exact same thing as a 10% tariff. So national treatment on that on that core way has does um uh go ahead with tariff commitments. Um and uh so you know that, that that's um I guess I, I don't want to jump out too much, but that that was uh that shows you how far we've gone. Now to bring it back to the WTL challenge. What um, what uh, USDA's regulation did nothing like the Inflation Reduction Act did. Okay, it did not do anything to say like we're going to tax this country or you know you know you get a you get a you get a, you get an extra income tax credit for buying American beef. No, it didn't do anything like that. It was a very straightforward labeling law. It just said you know give us give us some supply chain transparency, which is very in vogue as our food uh, supply chain is increasingly globalized. So. So there was no as such challenge to bring against what USDA did in 2009. They it was an as applied challenge. So they they're not even arguing that like the rule they can't even argue a case uh, that the rule is discriminatory um you know just the way it's uh written. They they had to they had to argue well the way it's going to be applied is going to have a disproportionate effect on imported beef. Okay, as a, so already you're on an infinitely weaker legal territory, and this is why it's like one of the reasons it's such a bad decision. Um, you're on infinitely weaker legal territory when you're talking about an as-applied challenge. Um, then um, that was number one. Number two is the, why I put this in my all-time terrible WTO decisions is, and, and it, it's so unprincipled, okay? It's so unprincipled. Um, you know, for, on the... Inflation Reduction Act EV tax credits, that was another thing. Like we actually, you know, countries don't do that. Like if, if you go to Europe, they don't apply lower or higher sales taxes depending on if you buy an American or European car. Um, you know, they like they, they don't actually do that. Uh and we don't, right? Like, why doesn't Michigan have a higher sales tax on non-Michigan cars? It's because we've all kind of honored that. Um, you know, uh going back to our treaties of amity of commerce in uh, you know, 1790. 
1789, the first one with France. So, you know, that, but, but this beef one, we all, all, we all do that. We do that all the time. We have heightened supply chain and disclosure requirements. That FTC rule, if you go buy a DeWalt drill, I mean, it'll say, you know, uh, they've tailored it so you can now say, so DeWalt can say, assembled in the USA with imported components. So, and, you know, um, I like to point out that our we started with food labeling laws in earnest. Uh, I'm, 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 I may be off here, but I want to say it's 1909, thereabouts, it, you know, thereabouts. Uh, don't quote me on 1909, but and one of the first things we did was on liquor, especially because that was a huge problem with food adulteration. Uh, they, um, they, the something called the coffee column still had been invented. It you couldn't, you can't make good whiskey with it, but you can make pure alcohol really cheaply. That still runs twenty four seven. They usually run eleven months of the year. You just constantly shovel in any kind of feedstock, grain, sugar, whatever. It doesn't even matter, and you run it up this huge column, and it comes out you know, near pure alcohol, like 95% ABV. And uh, so, so when that kind of still was invented, they started like cutting down, it was so like, they'd take a bit of pot distilled whiskey, cut it down with this column whiskey, uh, coffee uh, still whiskey, and then like artificially flavor it. You know, people were getting sick and everything it was bad news. And so that was one of the first things we did. And, and at, at the time we did that first food labeling law, uh, it was a really interesting split. We had, um, uh, different countries, you know, Canada and UK did the same. We were, but uh, we started to like segue off. That was when the bourbon people were like, hey, you know, well, bourbon means something. And uh, bourbon means uh, you've got uh, a 50% corn mash. So, so at least half of the grain used for bourbon has to be corn. And um, you have to use a new char barrel. And, you know, for straight, for straight bourbon, it's got to be aged two years in that new char barrel in the United States. All of that, we've had that law for, you know, over a century now. And um, that does everything that the WTO said it was illegal. You know, it, re it requires uh, distillers to, you know, segregate their supply chains and everything. And uh, so, you know, that's why one of the reasons why it was such a terrible decision, um, because, uh, you know, if, if the way the WTO decisions work is it's, it's all very narrow. It's not a court. Okay. All, all these decisions are, you cannot they have no viability in domestic law. Like you can't, you can't, um, a meat processor can't take a WTO decision to a US court and say, hey, give me some relief. All the WTO can do is authorize retaliatory tariffs. And uh, and so that's what they did in this one very narrow case. Um, and then that got Congress to be like, oh, we don't want, um, you know, retaliatory tariffs in Canada. That's a fib, okay. <laughs> um, in other areas, where we another another cases we've lost like on our um, ethanol subsidies, we we lost we we just pay off the other country. So we just start uh, we, we, with Brazil. We lost the WTO. So then okay, well you know what? We open our checkbook. What's it going to take for you guys to just live with our uh, you know subsidy scheme and not do retaliatory tariffs and we pay them off? Um, and uh, but I think you know with the domestic politics that you guys are up against. Uh, and those processors wanted the cheapest beef they could get. We didn't, even after losing this horrible decision, we didn't uh, just pay off the other uh, country. And with Canada and Mexico, by the way, we run, you know, we run trade deficits with them. We could, there's so much room for negotiation there. Like, how about we stop destroying your supply management system for dairy and you guys stop trying to, you know, uh, take over our cattle market? Like, like th there's so many things that could be done. You know, right now we're beating up Mexico on 
you know, things they want to do on GMO corn. It's also crazy. But at the end of the day, the consistent thing is the big institutional capital gets what they want. Um, I'll say maybe a couple more things to, you know, put the WTO dispute settlement system in perspective. Um, you know, the, uh, like big tobacco, you know, this was like, this was a shameless thing. Um, in 2012, Australia had a plain packaging rule. So kind of the opposite, but um, they, they felt that they had a, the big tobacco had a claim that like, oh, you're eliminating, infringing our trademarks with your packaging rule. And uh, they, but U.S. didn't want to bring that case. Canada, Europe, no, they didn't get they didn't get a lot. Of, big Tobacco at this point in 2012 was not finding a lot of takers, and so they got Ukraine. <laughs> you know, they, they're just like, which wasn't even a tobacco country. But that's just like how you know. The, the, I just want to convey that the WTO dispute settlement system is overwhelmingly a tool for institutional capital to get what they want. There's no principles involved. Um, Ukraine did end up, you know, I, I guess someone in the U.S. or Europe called them up and said, knock it off. So they dropped that case in 2015, only for Honduras and uh, I don't know, some, I think the Dominican Republic took it over. But anyway, um, all so of this. Yeah. In in what you have just said, you've taught me something. The tariffs, the, the, the concept of tariffs is really not the big bad wolf. It seems that tariffs in global trade, like we are all involved in, is a pretty fluid situation. It's just a negotiation um, mechanism and it is not the end of the world to any country. So what could have the US done to provide a different outcome in this WTO um, case against labeling our beef? What was missed? Yeah, so um, I mean, this, there's so many things they could have done. Right. On, on the one hand, you know, under the uh, what the Obama administration uh, was willing to do was just just pay off the other side. I mean, it was it's gosh, I'm sorry. I, I think it was a, a billion or something but I, with the authorized tariffs. But, you know, it, there, there, there have been bigger cases like Airbus Boeing completely dwarfs that. And we just lived with retaliatory tariffs like that was like, you know, Boeing Airbus. We. We both subsidize our, you know, Boeing and Airbus to the, and you know, it's have this gamesmanship. A lot of lawyers make a lot of money, uh, and we just live with retaliatory tariffs with Europe for a long time. Um, so living with the retaliatory tariffs is one option. Uh, um, just buying off is another. But in this case, uh, we're 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 past that stage. So the Trump administration, you know, and. And and uh, you know I'm a huge fan of Ambassador Lighthizer, who was Trump's USTR. Uh, they they under they were the first they they signaled the new era to be like, look, we have the we we have the biggest trade deficit of any country in the world, and we're going to start to use that leverage. You know, it's pretty like when 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 you're the biggest importer, like you have all the leverage against the other countries. And so, um, you know, when Trump did his uh, two three two steel tariffs, he hit Canada and Mexico with those. Sorry, when I say two three two. That's because Section two three two of the Trade Act of nineteen sixty two. But um, yeah, the uh, we 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 put tariffs on on uh, Canadian aluminum uh, and steel and Mexican aluminum steel um, and for a bunch of other countries, and uh, and we just cited national security, which is a WTO grounds. We ended up losing that suit just uh, last year. But um, when Canada came with the retaliatory tariffs, you know Trump had a famous line. He's just like, "Oh, you want to you want to start you want to make this a big fight? You want to hit us with tariffs?" And he had a famous line where he's like, "I just lift up a picture of a Chevy Malibu." 
because <laughs> the Chevy Malibu was made in Oakville, Ontario. And he's like, look, you guys have a sweet thing going. You, you, you're, you're like international trade is like a third of our GDP or, you know, whatever it, it's, it's like the majority of yours, you know, you, you, we have the trade deficit with you. So, it, you know, if, if you want to hit us with retaliatory tariffs, cause the WTO said, so, um, you know, X, Y, and Z, we'll just double it. We'll just hit you with more now. Okay. So that's one approach. Uh, the, the, um, the, he got a lot of critics for that, you know, take it or leave it, but say what you will. It ultimately went, it changed the calibration. And, um, you know, I think in automotive, it was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, the automotive industry, uh, you know, was them, were themselves like outsourcing more and more wanting to be reliant on imports from Mexico. They'd even begun importing cars from China to the, you know, the GM was importing the Buick Envision from China in 2015, they'd started. Uh, Ford was just about to get underway. And so they were fighting the Trump administration on tariffs. And like the Trump administration was like, look, we know where this is going. You know, we know that this is where this is going is, you know, you're claiming that tariffs hurt everything. No, where, if we don't do tariffs, you're just gonna you're you're gonna be content to be a brand. You're gonna let Chinese uh, automakers, state-owned automakers, by the way, um, with GM, uh, their joint venture partners, SAIC. They're gonna do all the work of making it and sending it over here, and you're just gonna be like a royalty company, like Nike, slapping your brand on it, and that's your vision of the future. We're not on board for it, so uh, credit to uh, them. They got so much flack for that approach, but they it, they resolved it. You know, and then at the end, when Mexico and Canada recalibrated, like, okay, this is a new world. And they they negotiated a settlement that basically said on steel aluminum, okay, like, this is how much we're going to send to you. Like, we're not going to try to keep on pushing and pushing more of our exports so that you have to close more smelters. We're not going to do that. And they're called voluntary restraint agreements. But in 2019, we basically have negotiated voluntary restraint agreements with Canada and Mexico, We've done the same with Korea. Um, and, uh, and we also like increased our rule of origin standard. We went beyond the substantial transformation. We got this new, like melted and poured standard to try to cut out the Chinese content. So we did all these positive things and it came with, it came with the, uh, last administration being willing to use the tariffs, but guess what? This is not, uh, this is now the Biden administration has doubled down on this. That this was, we didn't know, no, like ambassador Tai was, you know, she was like, okay, that's the best pick, um, and uh, we're we're thrilled that uh, Ambassador Tai, she's the Biden administration's trade representative, um, and uh, and the Biden administration have doubled down on that. So those two three two tariffs, I mentioned we'd negotiated a settlement that didn't involve us paying off Canada Mexico, um, but there were other countries we hadn't, like Norway was one for example, and some others. So that so Norway kept that WTO lawsuit going and won it uh, last year, and um, and uh, the U.S. The WTO said, sorry, USA, your national security uh, ex um, explanation is not satisfactory. We don't buy it. What did the Biden administration do? Told them to go pound sand. Like we're, uh, you know, and exact same thing as the, as, their, as the Trump administration. You know, you want to, you want to do retaliatory tariffs, we're just going to hit you with double or more. So look, you know, you recognize that you've got the ad, with, you, you've got the trade surplus and, uh, and you shouldn't be complaining when we try to defend, you know, a domestic producer, because right now you've got the much better end of the deal. So, so kudos to the Biden administration, you know, the Trump administration had done that, had only told the WTO to pound sand once, and that was on our China tariffs when we lost that case uh, under that administration. But now the Biden administration is doing it more and more. So we, we lost the 232 tariff, tariff case, 
We lost another case about recognizing Hong Kong as a separate entity from China. Biden administration just says we don't care. And, uh, and now we just lost uh, a USMCA case on automotive about the rule of origin, because that's another area where we just we don't accept substantial transformation anymore. So under we already did under NAFTA had a had a heightened rule of origin standard for automotive. With USMCA, we 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 took it way higher, and we say all these different parts of the car have to be made in the U.S. We lost a case on a, like a narrower aspect of that. We're just saying, like, look, you know, Mexico, you send us like, um, oh gosh, it's it's we have like a ten to one. I know a ten to one trade deficit with Korea, Mexico. Basically, we send they send us a lot more cars than we send them, and uh, so we just said the same thing. Like, you know, look. You've got the better end of the stick. You got to accept. You got to accept our interpretation. Um, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm. I've said all that. So my, my hope for is like, we, we, the, the, the last, this president, and last president have been there. Um, we have a lot more work to do on in congressional leadership. I, I'm interested to see. We've got a new House Ways and Means Chairman. Um, Ways and how that's the committee in the House that kind of manages trade and tariffs and whatnot. Senate finance, we I think we've got, you know, we'll see this it's the same old, same olds. And these are very, you know, they're they they've not had the evolution that the last two presidents have had, but um we're we're getting there. And at the end of the day, I don't see why that or you know, you just would go ahead and introduce that same uh, you know, 2009 rule. Uh it, it's not getting struck down today. There's not going to be another WTO ruling, WTO challenge. Europe's not even willing to challenge at the WTO this $7,500 tax on every car. I mean, it's just a completely different landscape now. So, so I want to affirm what you just said, because as as those of us out in the country are calling our lawmakers and saying we want our beef labeled and consumers are calling their lawmakers and saying we want our beef labels and the lawmakers they're cowering in the corner and saying oh but the wto they're they're out to get us they know in washington dc that we are at a trade deficit with these countries these lawmakers know that we have leverage that they are not executing when it comes to resolving this beef labeling issue that would be massively beneficial to rural America um, and to the cattle industry, our largest, you know, segment of American agriculture. And they're basically, they're basically sitting back on their heels, denying us the power that they know they have, that they could be yielding right now. That everything you said is a hundred percent correct. Yeah, you know, there's um at the end of the day, the, 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 like your hurdle is not a WTO decision. Your hurdle is uh, the meat processors. Now, there, I think there's two things you can you can you know I, I'm a trade lawyer. I'm not like a lobbying specialist. I do work very closely with uh, our government advocacy folks, but you know, the, uh, there's one more thing you can like say like, look, there's all these other industries that we just we recognize that we're a huge net importer and we've just said like, look, it, this is how it's going to be to the other countries. So steel, aluminum, um, and now with uh, automotive, solar panels, all this clean energy stuff, the Democrats are doing it, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, you know, we, you're basically saying our industry is like less important than theirs, right? You know, we're, we're willing to, you know, you, you, you don't seem too worried about um, uh, this, uh, um you know, this discrimination, but you're worried about it for us. Like, come on now that, so that's an argument. I think that there's a lot of uh, people on the Hill that like, that's 
can be a very effective thing. And they're gonna, they're gonna have a very hard answer for that. You know, um, if, if, if you talk to a, if you've got a democratic member and they're not, they're not working actively to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act domestic uh, content bonuses, you can say, you're, well, why aren't you upset about that W2 violation? Now, um, the flip side is though, you know, you are gonna find some members, I think that uh, like they're, they are like, you've got to, I, I see it too, that are very mindful of like, they don't want to upset um, other countries. Uh, you say another another approach is look peanuts have a tariff rate quota. Why 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 did peanut why why are ranchers why are we just thrown we've, there's a zero percent tariff on beef by the way so you know that product just comes in free peanuts gets a hundred and thirty one percent tariff and they and they control the percentage of imports in a sustainable manner. There's not we're not overproducing here we're not overproducing see this is good for the environment. Why are peanuts more deserving of a sustainable system? But we're just thrown into, uh, you know, a race to the bottom with, uh, you know, uh, it's 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 unhealthy for everybody, um, and it's just going to lead to more and more consolidation across the continent, uh, like we've seen. So it's just everyone's loose. So I think there's two attacks. You can say one is this, like, in all these other areas, we've blown off the WTO. You know, why are we less worthy than them? Or the other is um, if uh, you know you say why are we less worthy than like peanuts? Why are we less worthy than cotton or corn growers for ethanol who have gotten all these other uh, arrangements? And you know, are what like what I would like to see is I like to see that that 2009 regulation brought back right away, and then you know you can take a, a strong arm approach like the Trump administration did or the Biden is and a number of products. But I think on agriculture in particular you know, because we're the bad guy in other areas, we can just uh, talk, we can just hammer this out. Like if you've got a really, you know, we say like, look, we'll stop beating you up on dairy. Don't beat us up on cattle, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of ways to go for it, but um, yeah, just bring back that regulation right now because the climate's completely changed. And I, and I guarantee you there will not be another WTO dispute process on that. Okay, so I think, yeah, you have helped us thoroughly cover this WTO issue um, and why DC, you know, the lawmakers should not be scared of it because basically our trade reps are not scared of it, but they have to be signaled by the lawmakers to, to do something. So then that leads me to maybe a question that um, could be a little bit outside of your lane. And so maybe this is more just ask, asking your opinion. Do you feel like reinstating mandatory country of origin labeling on our beef is the leverage maker for our cattle industry, our domestic cattle industry, so that we don't become reliant on government subsidies, so that we can let the American consumer place the fair value on our domestic beef at the grocery store and support us there? Yeah, so I've I've been I I I don't I wouldn't necessarily have known, but I I've I've heard great things from you know Bill and whatnot that that that, that when that was in place it made a big difference, and I'm really like heartened to hear that. I think for a lot of consumer goods that aren't food, you know, the fact is is like the the, the cheapest is going to win, and you know, I'd love to say that you know people are really patriotic, but you know I, I, on a lot of consumer manufacturer items, not necessarily, but I think on food, my gosh, more and more people are I miss, you know I actually. You know, down in Florida, like it's getting harder and harder to find, uh, you know, shrimp from the Gulf, right? I mean, it's like you're, you're uh, you know, it's all coming from overseas, and it's exact same as the problem with cattle, zero percent tariff. So, um, you know, it, we're we're losing it. We import more and more of our food every year. Americans don't want that. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really heartened to believe that, that even just having the supply chain uh, transparency is going to make a huge difference. I, I, was, I was thrilled to hear that from Bill. This is a great place to ask is you've had, you know, global experience living in quite a few different places. What have you seen in beef labeling in other countries? So, I mean, India, right? Like not a big beef country. Uh, <laughs> it's quite the opposite. Um, uh, you know, in, in France, uh, they, they've got a totally different approach. It's, um, uh, you know, they, it's actually a big trade dispute. Uh Europe's got what they call geographical indi indications. They use legislation, EU legislation. So it's like controlling across the whole of the EU. I don't know, like hundreds and hundreds of food items. Now, where they say, I mean, the, you know, the classic is champagne, right? Well, if, if champagne, it's got to be from champ champagne, and a lot of Americans are familiar with that. They, but they've got that for hundreds of products. They, you know, uh, camembert cheese, like all you name it. I mean, it's so so deep. Uh, in the United States, we claim to, uh, you know, traditionally we've claimed to be totally opposed to this. So we don't, you know, we don't, we don't like this. Uh, oh, but never mind. But we totally do it for bourbon in half for over a century, and now we're doing it for wine. You know, we're we've had we've got rulemakings all over the country now. We're we're copying. So in, in booze, we've totally adopted the European model uh, of controlling for appellation, right? You know, and that's why you see on all, all these wines now. Those are by law defined terms. You can't muck about if you say you're, you know, you're, if you put. Uh, county in California your grapes are from that county it's it's uh so I mean and I, I like it I think it's great uh, I I you know I Europe um you know we we're, on a lot of crops you know we're the China of the world uh, and I hate to say it but like you know in in steel and everything uh China they they way over subsidize and then they just need to dump product on the overseas market and they they they, they make way more steel than they can use and so they, they just sell it below cost overseas and unfortunately, on too many crops, that's us. We never, you know, I think due to, you know, the Great Depression, uh, you, we had all these federalism concerns. It was a lot harder for us to roll out uh, supply management and agricultural support systems um, than it was for most of the developed world that were able to do it. And so we've kind of been an outlier. And our solution is to just throw more and more money at a problem, which leads to overproduction which leads to consolidation and which leads to like dumping on overseas. So yeah, Europe, I'm, I'm actually a big fan of their geographical indication system. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll call, I call us out when we, where we, we claim to be opposed, but we use it for, you know, wine and spirits big time. Um, so what about yeah. Canada? You're a Canadian guy. What do you see in that beef market? What do you see in the beef aisle when you go to a Canadian grocery store? So I was just in Quebec over the holidays, visit, visiting the in-laws and, um, uh, I actually, this is something I've never seen before in Canada. And I, I saw a, uh, billboards for, uh, Quebec beef and, uh, and, um, and at the grocery store. And like, I don't, I've never seen that. Uh, it's huge. Like in Canada, like if you, McDonald's, all of them, they, 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 McDonald's, I think it really started after Mad Cow. Um, they really, they make a big deal. Like we use Canadian beef. So Mc, McDonald's and like, it's always been. I've always seen that Canadian beef, like like that's marketed everywhere. It's a big deal, um, and Canadians are very patriotic too. Uh, ketchup, uh, I, you know, there's a whole big thing. But when Heinz used to make all the ketchup in Canada for uh, um, in uh, Windsor, Ontario, and when they shut down the ketchup factory, Canadians lost their mind. Uh, and uh, French's, you know, like French's mustard, they, they they had like no role in ketchup. 
they saw an opportunity, swept in there, took over the Canadian ketchup market by making their ketchup this plan. It's all like right there on the label, made in Canada ketchup. So Canadians are very hyper-conscious. They want made in Canada food. Uh, they, they're all about it. Oh, but, and then to get back to Quebec, I'd never seen this before. Uh, Quebec beef, like they're like, and I, and I, and I don't like, I'm like, there's ranchers in Quebec. I didn't even know that. I always kind of thought all Canadian beef was from out West, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, yes, they're, they are hyper nationalistic when it comes to food and good on them for, it. uh, and, uh, and now even, you know, Quebec beef, I, I did not realize that was a thing. <laughs> that, that's, that must be nice that they get to do that for their beef. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we would know what to do with ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that leads us into our final question that we always end the podcast with. What is your favorite cut of beef and how do you like it prepared? Okay. Uh, I, uh, I mean, I've, I've just, I think I should, I should, I want to become more of a connoisseur. I, I, New York strip is what I always just ask for. Um, my wife is filet mignon. So that's usually how we split it up at home. And, uh, uh, you, you know, I were, it's funny. Both my parents are like, you know, blood red rare. I I'm still like, a, I always say medium. Um, but I, uh, I will say like I've, our, our beef intake has gone up substantially. Um, just in the last couple of years, I'm one of the many Americans that kind of discovered like low carb, lifestyle. And, uh, you know, I, I actually, you know, I, I, I lost 30 pounds in about a month when someone was just like, Hey, you should just try this. And you know, I, I'd eaten cereal my whole life, uh, you know, every morning. Anyway, I went low carb and, um, and, uh, I always thought like, Oh, is steak, you know, like, Oh, that's kind of like bad for my heart or something. Like I, I didn't know I switched it up. Now we're, now we're having steak every week, loaded up with butter, salt and pepper, uh, you know, and I, and I've never felt healthier. Um, so, uh, yeah, proud to say my, uh, beef intake has gone up, uh, you know, 10 times at least. <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to add before we jump off? I'm just, I'm really looking forward to working with Bill. And uh, I think that, you know, just as, you know, five years ago, we were like, you know, that we had a lot of headwinds. Now I think we're the, you know, the expression, I think we're behind the Overton window. Like this is now a very doable thing. And, you know, we gotta, we gotta make this happen. I know it's a farm bill year, so I, anything I can do to support Bill and you guys, because I'm passionate about this issue, uh, and I think you've got all the wind at your back. You know, I look at seafood too, what's going on, and all the new uh, supply chain and systems. That, like we're the era of like we're going to throw our you know food producers into direct competition with the whole world and not really care where our food comes from. That's done, and now we don't even care about the WTO anymore. So which is great. So I'm I'm feeling optimistic and looking forward to working with you all. Thank you, Charles, for joining us today and sharing your insights with our audience. It's time to make it known that the WTO does not stand in the way of mandatory country of origin labeling on beef. And it's time to get some action in Congress on Senate Bill 52, the American Beef Labeling Act. Call 202-224-3121 to speak with your senators and representative today. For more information about mandatory country of origin labeling, visit labelourbeef.com. Stay engaged in the conversation and give us a follow at RCAPUSA on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the RCAP USA Roundup. To learn more about RCAP USA, visit our website, www.r-capusa.com. 